looking here at a label what the covering is made out of the backing the filling what kind of fibers are in this little pillow why would it be important to look at a label does it really make a difference we're going to talk about that today hi it's tuesday 12 15 p.m time for lunch and learn hope you got some lunch and here we are with the learn lunch and learn this is our weekly torah session where we take about an hour and study some relevant and practical torah together here we go i'm going to start with a bracha a blessing over a cup of water baruch Every week we look at another topic. One topic was blessings. Why do we make blessings before we eat or drink? What blessings to make? On which categories of food? Every week another topic. Sometimes it's history. Sometimes it's Jewish law. Sometimes it's the Parsha. <clears throat> all different areas. And see how the teachings of Torah are relevant and applicable to our lives today, living in 2020. 3,332 and a half years after the Torah was given at Mount Sinai. Hi Amy, hi Jody, and hi Roy. <clears throat> We're getting ready to begin our Lunch and Learn study session. Today is a very fascinating topic, something I learned a lot about just uh, researching and preparing for today's lesson. It is uh, something, as we began, with a label. The importance of looking at labels of clothing or other articles made from different materials. Why would it be important to look at the labels to see uh, what things are made from? Uh, hi Vicky, Rachelea, welcome to the weekly Lunch and Learn. And it's a very mysterious topic, not very well known, even amongst uh, um, you know, the observant Jewish community, if you might say, it, it uh, maybe is not given the proper attention. So we'll touch upon upon this, but we'll begin with the connected, connected to the Parsha, to the portion of the week. And I want to say that today's lesson is dedicated to one individual, a woman who is being buried right now. The funeral is going on. A uh, sister of somebody here in the community. Um, her name is Nechama. Chana Nechama Bas Tzemach. A woman who recently passed. And we're dedicating today's lesson, the Torah that we will learn. And the inspiration we will gather from today's lesson. Dedicated to Chana Nechama Bas Tzemach. Or Neshama Shehavan Aliyah. This should be for a benefit for her soul, as well as my dear uncle, my father's older brother, who today is his fifth yard site, Aaron Eliezer Ben Rivka. Unfortunately, he was um, ill uh, for, for, for a couple of months and passed five years ago today. During the summer before his passing, he spent a Shabbos with us here in Seagate, benefiting from the crisp and, and um, air here near the water. And this should also be a memory, a blessing for his memory. His memory should be a blessing for us. And this Torah that we're studying today should be an aliyah for his neshama. I think we're just about ready to begin studying together. 
Um, if you looked in your email, you should have received the source sheet. Otherwise, you can download it from the post, from the link here. You have the link in the post to the source sheet. And we're going to look at a story in the Torah. One of the earliest stories that we have of humanity. And that is the story of Cain and Abel, two brothers. We'll look at a story in the Torah. Today's lesson is divided into four sections. We'll look at the story. We will analyze the story a little bit, go through some of the details that are not mentioned explicitly in the Torah, uh, extract some lessons in the first and second section, and then we'll move on to the third and fourth section, which will focus in on practical halacha um, in regards to labels of clothing, how this plays out and how it is um, dealt with nowadays here in America and across and around the world. So we are ready and join me with uh, the source sheet and source number one. Story happened 5,781 years ago, just about. So Adam and Eve were the first humans created on a Friday afternoon. And shortly after their creation, Eve conceives, gives birth to Cain, and then gives birth to Abel. This was before the curse of um, the pain and the lengthy pregnancies and pain of childbirth. So it was rather easy and quick. Cain and Abel are born. And eventually, the Torah describes what their professions became. Source number one. On the source sheet, Abel became a keeper of sheep and Cain became a tiller of the soil. So Abel in proper Hebrew is Hevel and Cain is Cain. We'll just stick to the more familiar terms. Abel was a shepherd. He took care of the sheep and Cain was sort of like a farmer. He worked the land. He was a tiller of the soil. He planted things, he took care of things growing. That was their professions. In the course of time, the Torah tells us, Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the soil. And Abel, he too, brought of the firstborn of his flocks, of his sheep, and of their fattest. The Lord turned to Abel and to his offering, but to Cain and to his offering, he did not turn. It annoyed Cain exceedingly, and his countenance fell. There's a quote from the Torah. Two brothers, the first brothers of history, Cain and Abel, and they each decide to bring an offering, a korban, as it's called in Hebrew, to bring up an offering to the Lord, to God. They were very aware of their creator. Cain chooses to bring something he is familiar with, something that grows from the ground. Some sort of fruit of the soil, something that grows from the soil, from the ground. Then Abel brings up a sheep. What the Torah emphasizes that Abel brings up the firstborn of his flock and of their fattest. He chose the choicest, the best one as a sacrifice. What was the result? Abel's offering was accepted. God turned to him and his offering. But to Cain and his offering, he did not turn. You can imagine Cain wasn't too happy about that. He was very annoyed by Yichar Lakain. He was quite upset, not just annoyed, but 
proper word in Hebrew, he was angry, Vayichar, and Vayiplupanav, his face fell, his countenance fell, he, he wasn't too happy with the results. Let's look at Rashi in source number two. Hi, Mark. Let's look at Rashi. Rashi gives us some more insight. Why? The questions right away, learning the story is, what a second. What was wrong with Cain's offering? Why did God not turn to Cain's offering? And second, what does it mean God turned? He saw God's face turning to him. What does it mean God turned and accepted his offering? Source 2, Rashi tells us, what did Cain bring? It says, from the fruit of the soil. says, Rashi, of the most inferior. He didn't bring the choices. By Abel, the Torah stresses and emphasizes that he doesn't just say he brought up from, the, from his sheep, from what he, was, what he was busy with. It says he brought the firstborn, first one, and the fattest, the choicest one. That's what he dedicated as a, as a sacrifice to Hashem. But Abel, but Cain, excuse me, just says the fruit of the soil. Which fruit of the soil was it? It was the most inferior. He didn't choose the best fruit or the best plants. He brought, he brought up something inferior. Rashi continues, and there is an, an agada, there is a midrash that states, that it was flaxseed, specifically which species was it, what kind of uh, plants was it, it wasn't a fruit, it was something that grows from the ground, it was flaxseed. But what kind of flaxseed did he choose? Not the best one, he bought the inferior kind. Ones that were cheap, ones that weren't in the best condition. What does it mean that God turned to Abel's sacrifice? Fire descended from heaven and consumed his offering. Only Abel's. But not Cain. So there was a very noticeable, very apparent difference between Abel's sacrifice, which was accepted by God, and not Cain. That's the first part of the story. So <clears throat> the first thing we see here, the first lesson before we get to the practical, as we mentioned, labels and shatnes, as it's called. <clears throat> the first thing we learn is that God, if God chose and, and turned to Abel's offering, obviously his was was more, um, that was the proper way. The proper way to bring up an offering is not by giving something inferior. One might say, you know, it's uh, anyways being burnt up on the altar. Why, why should I give the best stuff to, uh, to God? Let me have benefit from it. Why should I be deprived? But obviously that's not the case. God desires an offering which is the choicest, the best of the crop, the best of the flock, the fattest animals, the best plants, is the one to be devoted, to be given up to for an offering. And this is a halacha, this is brought down in Maimonides, who brings our story, the story of Cain and Abel, and he quotes as well a verse, or three, all of the superior quality should be given to God. Well, not necessarily all of the superior, but of the superior quality, that should be given to God. That's in reference to different sacrifices. One who desires to gain merit for himself tells us Maimonides, Rabbi Moshe Bar Nachman from Cordoba, Spain, who wrote his commentary, this one that we're quoting from, while he was leaving, living in Fustat, which is a, the old city, I believe, of Cairo in Egypt in the 12th century, one who desires to gain merit for himself 
to subjugate his evil inclination and amplify his generosity should bring his sacrifice from the most desirable and superior type of the item he is bringing. Whatever item, whatever kind of item he's bringing, whether it's uh, animal, whether it's plant, or whatever uh, some offerings in the temple were of flower, it sh- he should choose the most desirable kind, the most superior type. The same applies to everything given for the sake of the Almighty. Even though we're not bringing alt- uh, sacrifices and offerings and altars, everything for the, Almi- for the sake of the Almighty should be the same. It should be the most attractive, excuse me, and highest quality. So if we're buying tefillin, and we want leather straps, and there are different, there are different levels of you know, cheaper ones, more expensive ones, better quality, nicer ones, more beautiful, more durable. We should go for the choicest. If we're getting a mezuzah, we should buy a beautiful case. If we are feeding the hungry and giving the charity, we shouldn't just give them the leftovers. We should make them a delicious and and a good dish. If we are giving uh, clothing, yes, it's good to give away our, our um, clothes that we don't wear anymore, but sometimes you can give the think to give something good and choicey, even something that's in perfect condition, and give that away to the poor. Something which is for the sake of Hashem. Not just the leftovers like Cain chose, but like Abel chose, he took the choicest, the firstborn, and he dedicated that for uh, for Hashem. Someone who receives their, their, their paycheck, instead of using everything they need, and then if there's leftovers to give to charity, the first thing is we dedicate... For, the, for for charity, and then with what's left, we, we we make do and and use for our personal benefits. When we're building a shul, no, not just that. My house is beautiful and has the most fanciest couches, and everything is beautiful. And the shul has hard, um, uncomfortable benches. But the shul, which is a place connected to Hashem, should also be beautiful and and uh, worthy of carrying Hashem's name. Hi, Michael and Maureen. Hi, Stan. We are learning today about the story of Cain and Abel. Stan, I know you've asked lots of questions, and we're seeing how this relates to practical halacha, something called shatnez, related to checking labels of clothes. We'll get to that soon. First, we're analyzing the actual story of the offerings that Cain and Abel brought up 5,700, approximately 81 years ago. And the Maimonides so brings this story of Cain and Abel to show us that Abel's offering was accepted and was turned to by God because Abel chose the choicest. He didn't necessarily bring the best animal of his whole flock because he chose a sheep and not a cow or an ox, but he chose to bring a sheep and within the sheep species, he chose the firstborn and the fattest. But Cain chose maybe flaxseed, which is very nice plant, but he chose the inferior kind, the cheapest kind, the, the, the most beat up and not, not the best quality flaxseed. And therefore God did not accept his offering, teaching us a very important lesson. Source for what is this idea? What if God needs to take away the best? He, he's jealous of us and he wants to deprive us of, of the best stuff? Tells us source four. The Rebbe here gives us shed some light. By offering our choicest, we acknowledge that everything we own really belongs to God. That is why he deserves the choicest portion. When we give the best of whichever species we are offering, we demonstrate that every species of our possessions belongs in essence to God. So it's not just that God needs, he doesn't need flour, he doesn't need sheep meat, 
and he doesn't need flaxseed, he's not consuming it, he's not benefiting, benefiting for this. It's more the person who is behind the offering. And actually, it's uh, alluded to in the actual verse. If you go back to source number one, every word in Torah is exact. If you go back to the verse, it says, The Lord turned to Abel and to his offering, but to Cain and to his offering he did not turn. It seems a little extra to say he turned to Abel and to his offering. Could have said he turned to Abel's offering or to the offering of Abel and not to Cain's offering. Why does it say he turned to Abel and to his offering and to, but to Cain and to his offering he did not turn. It sounds like there's the person and there's the offering because it's not just the offering. Yes, the offering of Abel was more choicey, but it's the person behind the offering. God turned to Abel and to his offering because Abel, what he was acknowledging by choosing the fattest and choicest of his flock, of his sheep, there was the person behind it giving himself up, offering his, himself to Hashem, uh, saying that, acknowledging that everything he has really in essence belongs to God. And therefore, if it belongs to God, so he deserves he deserves the first of it. So it's not just that like God needs that piece on, on the altar, but it's the acknowledgement, it's the recognition that is coming along with them. Obviously, if a person has the recognition, then the rest of the flock that is in a person's possession after bringing up the offering will be utilized with the proper intentions for the proper, uh, for the proper uses that are permitted and in accordance to God's will. Uh, when a person like Cain chooses the most inferior. Yes, he is offering up something to God, but obviously it's there's lacking. It's lacking in the acknowledgement that everything belongs to Hashem. Because if he had that acknowledgement, he wouldn't just give the most inferior and the cheapest. And that's what the Torah says. And to Cain and to his offering, he did not turn. It wasn't just the offering. It was the person behind the offering that that acknowledgement was lacking. So that's the first lesson we have from the story. Okay, so we're, we are, uh, we just concluded the first section here, where before getting into, this is actually a topic that Maureen, thank you Michael, Maureen brought up um, about uh, certain materials being included in clothing, which the Torah tells us about how, how we should check labels. We'll get to that in a moment, we're first talking about the story here, and we'll see how this story relates to this mitzvah or this uh, prohibition. So the first thing we learned is that the reason why God turned to Abel is because he had that acknowledgement that everything in essence is God's and therefore he chose the fattest and the choicest and designated that as the offering. The same thing, even though we are not bringing offerings up on an altar, so Mashiach comes, but in things that we are using specifically for Hashem, for holy purposes, we should do it in the best and finest manner that we can. And I was very inspired just uh, on Sunday. We were at somebody's home helping them with their mezuzahs. Their, their, uh, new, uh, they needed some new mezuzahs. And as usual, I give them a selection. I say, you know, there's the cheaper kind. There's a better quality. And they ask, what's the, what does it mean better quality? And I decided to explain. And they says, so what's the question? Of course, this is a mezuzah. Then, of course, we're going to go with the better quality. If when I'm buying a phone, I'm buying a couch, I want the best of the best. Then, for sure, when it comes to godly things, spiritual things, we want the best quality. Moving on to our second section here, continuing on in the story. So Cain, um, 
when his offering was not accepted, his face fell. He was very angry. He didn't get his way. And not just he didn't get his way. Somebody else got their way uh, and not him. Not just he didn't get what he wanted. Somebody else got what he wanted. So what happened? Source 5, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you distressed? And why is your face fallen? Surely if you do right, there is uplift. But if you do not do right, sin crouches at the door. Its urge is toward you, yet you can be its master. A little bit uh, cryptic kind of words, with lots of commentaries explaining it. But we'll focus in on... The first words here, God tells him, surely if you do right, okay, you were mistaken. You didn't have that acknowledgement that everything, every species is in essence all created by Hashem. And therefore the best of any kind we choose, whether it's flaxseed or sheep, should be the choicest offered to Hashem. But it's not too late. You can correct your error. If you do right, Currently, there is uplift. You can be uplifted and everything will be wiped clean. But if you do not do right, then sin crouches at the door. Its urge is toward you. There's a temptation there, but yet you can be its master. What is this sin referring to? If you do not repent, you do not fix your ways and bring a proper offering, sin is right there. What is the sin? Some say that the original sin is the sin of Adam and Eve, the lust. But Torah doesn't use the word sin in reference to that story. Here is the first time Torah makes reference to the word sin. And that is the sin of Cain and Abel, even before Cain took action. Just what he was feeling in his heart. If Cain does not do right, he doesn't correct his error, there is sin present. What is the sin? This is the sin of jealousy, of envy. Cain was envious that Abel's sacrifice was accepted and not his. If you look in the wording, what does God say to Cain? Why are you distressed? Why is your face fallen? I mean, what kind of question is that? Of course is he's upset. God, he just brought up an offering. He just took flaxseed. He brought up an offering and God did not accept his offering. And his brother Abel, who took a sheep and also brought up an offering, a fire comes down and consumes it. Who would, what, what do you mean? Why is his face fallen? Why shouldn't he be, why shouldn't he be upset? So there's a, uh, you know, a teaching of the Gera Rebbe. Ger is a Hasidic court, a Hasidic group. You know, there's Satmer and Babov and different groups and coming from different cities somewhere in, uh, I don't know, Poland, Galicia, maybe Ukraine. And one is Gor. And Gor, Ger. And one of the, the, the Rebbes were known to be very, uh, very sharp, very witty. Today they're based out of uh, Israel, Jerusalem, B'nai Brak, I believe. And... One of the early Rebbe's his name was, uh, he's known as the Chidush Yarim, the Rabbi Yitzchak Meir, he would say, God was telling him, why are you distressed? Are you distressed because your offering was not accepted? Or are you distressed because your brother's offering was accepted and not yours? What are you really bothered about? That I didn't accept your offering? Or that you both did something and the other person got something that you didn't get? And you'd be happier 
if the other person wouldn't get it, eh, you wouldn't be too upset. Your face wouldn't be fallen. So why are you really distressed? Is it because you're missing out or because there's somebody else that has more than you and you're jealous and envious of him? Source 6. Had Cain offered a second offering, this time of the choicest of his crop, God would have accepted it. God told him, if you do right, there is uplift, you will be uplifted. God here, God here tried to teach him that if an individual learns from his errors, his slate can be wiped out, can be wiped clean. You make a mistake, we're not perfect, we're imperfect people, we stumble, we make mistakes, but we have a chance, we have an opportunity to learn from our errors and this, this slate will be wiped clean. However, Cain refused to admit that he was wrong. Instead, growing angry and blaming others. He blamed Abel. Excuse me, instead of turning introspective and repenting, he developed, he developed a terrible hatred for his brother, his brother Abel. Instead of saying, wait, the problem is with me. Maybe I brought up the wrong kind of offering. What was Cain's response? No, it's not me. If Abel wouldn't be here, I wouldn't look so bad. We have to eliminate Abel. Instead of owning up to his error and learning to change his ways, giving himself uh, a second chance to recognize his error, his mistake, and try again to learn from Abel, to emulate Abel, Instead of saying that Abel is the source of the problem, on the contrary, Abel te is teaching him. Abel is inspiring. Wow, he got this right. I made a mistake. Let me learn from him. Let me also bring up a offering from not something inferior. I'll take the best flaxseed. I'll take something of uh, a good quality and bring it up as an offering. Instead of being inspired by Abel and try to follow his footsteps, Cain would not admit his error. And unfortunately, his hatred for his brother Abel took him to terrible action. Source 7, when they were in the field, Cain set upon his brother Abel and killed him. Cain felt that if Abel were eliminated, his own view would necessarily prevail. He would not give in that he's wrong. If Abel wasn't here, then he's the only one, so he's going to be right. His view would prevail. Instead of owning up and recognizing that he was mistaken, and instead of being envious, he should try to emulate his brother. This is a very powerful story. And one of the reasons I'm sure why Torah chooses to record the story, although I'm sure there were many, many encounters between Cain and Abel throughout their life. According to one opinion, they were about 40 years old when this story happened. Other opinions say it was earlier. But Torah chooses this story not just because it ended Abel's life, because it has lessons that are eternal. Source 8, they can maybe apply to our life today. When others achieve more than we do. We tend to have one of two possible reactions. We can grow jealous and wish them harm. How come I invested just as much or even more than them and I wasn't as successful? We can grow jealous and wish them harm. Or we can admire what they have accomplished 
and strive to emulate and even surpass them, to work hard, to try to ask them for advice, try to see how we can learn from them. Maybe they're more kind, they're more giving, maybe they did things humbly, whatever it is. And be inspired by them, look up to them and try to emulate them and perhaps even surpass them. How we react to people who have surpassed us in their success to envy or emulate is among the most important character-shaping behaviors. And obviously from the story of Cain and Abel, we see what the true path is for us. On Yom Kippur, I shared a story before Yisker, or repeated here, in case you missed it, but it's applicable to this topic here. It was a town in Poland where people had a difficult time making a living. They were very poor. There was one individual who was wealthy and learned, knowledgeable. He was very honored. And one day, <clears throat> the... This man, his name was Reb Jacob. He calls, uh, he sends out invitations and 12 of the leaders of the community of the town get an invitation which in which they are invited to Reb Jacob's home for a meal worthy of paradise. Next Tuesday. Imagine they get this invitation. They're very excited. What an honor to be invited by Reb Jacob. A meal worthy of paradise. It's going to be really special. And that Tuesday at 12 o'clock noon, they're all seated around the very elegant table and waiting for the meal worthy of paradise. Reb Jacob is sitting at the head of the table. He rings the bell and the waiter comes in and serves Reb Jacob a delicious, fresh-looking roll. And he washes and he makes the blessing and he begins to eat. And they're all looking at him and seeing how he's taking it in and just living it up. Delicious, he says. Oh, this roll, amazing. And they're waiting and waiting for their portion, but it's not coming. And he finishes the roll and he rings the bell and the waiter brings in some soup and he tastes the soup of Jacob and he says, oh my gosh, I never had such a delicious soup in my life. So tasty. And they're watching him. And then the waiter brings in a plate of meat and vegetables. He says, oh my gosh, you don't know what you're missing out on. This is just... Such meat, so tender, such such a delicacy. And finally, one of the 12 leaders blurts out to Jacob and says, I don't understand. You invited us here. Thank you for the invitation. But this is a meal worthy of paradise. I mean, we're just sitting here. We're hungry. What, what kind of, what, what, what's going on here? And Jacob says, thank you for asking. Let me tell you. Do you think a meal worthy of paradise is something, a, a delicacy, a dish from paradise? You think paradise is a restaurant over there? You think there's good cuisine in paradise. That's not what paradise is about. In paradise, paradise is a place where the souls, the people in paradise, love each other so much that they can see each other's happiness. They can see somebody else being happy, being successful, being benefited, and they are just so happy for them. There is no hard feelings. There's no feelings of of envy, of jealousy. There's just happiness feeling good for the other person. That's what paradise is. There's no ego. There's no self. They're just fully there for each other and genuinely happy 
for the other person's success. That's paradise. And I brought you here to experience a meal worthy of paradise where you can see another individual benefiting, having rolls, crispy and fresh rolls and soup and meat, and just watch them instead of being jealous and being getting angry and saying, what about me? How come I'm not having such a thing? To be, rather, to be fully, um, really happy and genuinely um, just happy for the other person having a good meal. And now that you learned your lesson, I'll call the waiter and bring out for all of you. Perhaps we can live a little bit in paradise. And we learn from the story of Cain and Abel that although they were out of paradise, Adam and Eve were in paradise, but we can try to bring a piece of paradise into our lives when we see another person, another individual, who is more successful, who seems to have more than us, who seems to be more happy in any area of life, Instead of being envious, instead of being jealous, even in our hearts, we should try to or work towards being genuinely happy for them. And instead of being envious, try to emulate them, try to learn from them, to be inspired by them and follow in their footsteps. And perhaps you'll even surpass them, but throw away to try to throw away those negative feelings. What happened to Cain? Eventually, after killing his brother Abel, God shook him up and reprimanded him and gave him some consequences. He became a wanderer. And to a certain degree, Cain did regret commentaries debate, whether it was a full repentance or not full but the Torah goes on to say, source 9, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Hanoch. And he was building a city, and he called the city after the name of his son. So after this incident, Cain knew his wife, that's the way the Torah describes the relations, relations and she conceived and bore a son, and his name was, he was given Hanoch. And he, Cain, was building a city. And this city was named after his son, Hanoch. Why is this important? Why does the Torah insert this right over here? Cain knew that he had destroyed human life. So he resolved to increase it. First he had a son. And then he built a city, a place where people could thrive. Cain did something to correct, at least, uh, you know, at least uh, somewhat, what he did. He destroyed human life. He resolved to have a child, Hanoch. And the Torah says he was building a city. It doesn't say he built a city. He was building his whole life. He dedicated to building, to building a city, to a place where people can come together, live together, a place where people can thrive, a place where people can learn from each other. His name that his, his son was given, the name is, gave his son was Chanoch. Chanoch means educate. Chinoch means education. Chanoch means to educate because Cain realized that in order for people to have the ability not to be envious of one another but to emulate one needs to be given a proper education and needs to 
be, be around others, sometimes hear criticism and be put on the right track. He built a city and he was always building a city. And he named his son Chanoch, education, emphasizing the importance of education, teaching children how to you know, shape their character, how they should help, to help them grow up to be a, um, <clears throat> a loving and genuinely caring person for others. And Source 10 teaches us from the Rebbe, the Rebbe points out two points we see from the story that we'll move on to the labels. Source 10, number one, repentance must translate into deeds that undo the harm caused by the sin. Now, of course, the person, Abel is dead. We can't bring him back alive. But something must be done. It's not just enough to go to someone and confess and bang over here and say, I sinned, I sinned. Okay, I regret it. That's not enough. That's, that's, even if it's genuine, that's not enough. We need to translate. The repentance needs to translate into deeds. Do something. Take action. To Try to do something in the opposite direction of the sin you caused. Cain destroyed life. He dedicated himself, he built us, he, he had a son, and he dedicated himself to building a city to help life flourish. And to try to, to prevent murder from happening once again by people being educated and learning from one another. And similarly, in, in different, whatever the sin is that a person is repenting from, if they, um, whatever thing it was, to go to the other extreme. If one time they didn't give food to the poor, to go to the other extreme and help people and bring awareness to others, to promote charity. And point number two, we must not let ourselves be dragged down by past wrongdoings. Rather, we must harness our feelings of remorse and channel them into something productive. Not to feel bad and say, oh yeah, 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 I've seen it and I'm, I'm done with. If we're still alive, then we have to move on. We have to not get dragged down, but try to take the wrongdoing and try to channel it, that that feeling of remorse from the wrongdoing, if the person didn't do that sin, they wouldn't be so inspired to go ahead and bring awareness and try to, and try to correct what was done. So in a way, if someone, and no one's perfect, after uh, if a person committed a sin, then that, those feelings of remorse should be translated into, into action, into helping others and preventing others from doing this. And that really leads into the next idea here, something called shatnez. Shatnez, we'll learn about this, and it connects to how if, if one person um, failed, or, or not failed, but uh, was negligent in an area to bring about an awareness and use that that uh, error and try to build off it and grow from it. Source eleven. We turn our page. We're gonna get some, we're gonna get practical here. There's something called shatnez. What is shatnez? It's a word in the Torah. Source number eleven. Very mysterious halacha, very mysterious and not so well-known mitzvah. It's one of the 613 mitzvahs, one of the 365 uh, negative commandments. And it's related to this story of Cain and Abel. 
Source 11. We skip from Genesis, where the story of Cain, Cain and Abel is recorded, to the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Source 11. You shall, uh, if you're here with me and following, just uh, let me know. And if you have any questions and comments, feel free to put in the comments, and we'll get to them uh, as soon as we're done here. <clears throat> so, you shall observe my statutes. Thank you. It was great to study Torah together. So the Torah says, You shall observe my statutes, God says. One of them is a garment which has a mixture of shatnes shall not come upon you. You shall not wear, excuse me, a garment which has a mixture of shatnes. What does that mean? Torah doesn't explain in Leviticus, but in Deuteronomy, the Torah elaborates. You shall not wear a mixture, hi, of of uh, wool and linen together. What is shatnes? The word shatnes means a mixture. What kind of mixture? A mixture of wool and linen. So we have materials. Let's say clothing. And clothing are made up of different materials, different fibers. And if there is a mixture in one article of clothing of wool and linen. There are threads in there from wool and there are linen threads and they are in the same garment together. That, the Torah says, such a garment you shall not wear. We know of kosher foods. Certain animals we don't eat. We know certain mixtures, milk and meat, should not be mixed. And here we have in clothing, a mixture of wool and linen makes the garment forbidden to wear. So, now, let's get down to this and see how it applies, how, how this is related to the story of Cain and Abel we just discussed. And then in our next section, we'll get down to some of the details how to go about this mitzvah. So kosher clothes, the mitzvah of having kosher, kosher clothes. Making sure our clothes are free of a mixture of wool and linen. Source 12, wool refers to wool from sheep or lambs. Specific, the Hebrew word is tzemer. Tzemer rechelin. Tzemer means wool from a sheep. Wool from a lamb. It does not refer to camel wool. Mohair. Angora, cashmere, alpaca, or visunya. So those are things that look very similar to wool, but are not from, those are materials which are not from a sheep. It comes from goats, maybe rabbits, <clears throat> different kinds of goats, but not from sheep. Now they can look very similar to wool, but that's not the prohibition here. It needs to be specifically what's called tzemer, wool from a sheep. Not a camel, not goats, not rabbits, not cashmere, which is very similar looking to wool. Only wool from a sheep. Now linen, the reference to linen only applies only to fibers from the flax plant, not hemp or jute. Now, we're talking about using hemp for not, not for other purposes. We're talking about using hemp 
for clothing, for thread, which comes, that's not, per, that's not forbidden. Hemp or jute is not what we're talking about here. The word is pishtim, pishtan in Hebrew. Pishtan means flax. And from the stalks, on the stalks of the, of the flax, not the seeds, but the stem, that is made into thread. And those fibers are forbidden. Linen for itself is okay. You could have a linen jacket. You could have a linen dress. And you could have wool. But a mixture of wool and linen, that's what's forbidden. Torah says, Lo silba shatnez. You shall not wear shatnez, which is a mixture of semeru pishtim yachtov. Together. In one garment, even if over here you have a thread of wool and over here on the back somewhere you have linen, it's forbidden. You should not wear it. It's not kosher. It's not proper. It's not fitting for a Jew to wear these clothing. Somebody else could wear it. For us, we have a special diet and we have a special code for our, dre- for our wardrobe, uh, dress, uh, for, our war- for our closets. Now, before we get into more details, how does this relate to Cain and Abel? So the first thing is, what's the reason? What's the reason for this prohibition? What's wrong with wool and linen? It's going to make me uh, itchy. Why, why can't I have it? So it's similar to kosher. The, the reason why we can't have meat and milk is not because it's not healthy. Kobe is also not healthy in some instances, but that's not the reason. The reason is because the Torah says, you shall observe my statutes. We know that uh, the Torah, the mitzvahs are divided into three categories. One is called mishpatim. For example, those are laws that are very rational. Things that even if the Torah would not say it, we would come up with. They're secular laws as well. Do not kill, do not steal. Honor your parents, you know. They, they invested in you, you should honor them. And many such mitzvahs that are very logical. And we would have came up with them even without the Torah being given to us. Another category is called edut, which is testimonial mitzvahs. We put up a mezuzah because the mezuzah reminds us of God and, and uh, when we come in and we leave the house where we acknowledge God's presence it keeps us God on our mind. We put on tefillin by our heart and our mind because the heart and the mind and the brain are the most important parts of the body and we dedicate ourselves in the morning. We eat matzah to remember the exodus because our forefathers, when they left Egypt, they didn't eat matzah. They, they didn't eat leavened bread, they ate matzah. And we keep Shabbos because God created the world in the six days and he rested on the seventh so we commemorate that and remember that every week. So we would not have came up with it by ourselves. Oh, who cares though? My ancestors couldn't have bread. Okay, we have to have uh, stomach problems for eight days a year. Because of that, we, there's other ways to, to celebrate, to remember the Exodus. We have to eat bitter herbs. But we understand that once Torah says, it's somewhat logical to us. But then there is a category of mitzvahs which are called chukim. Translated as statutes. What are statutes? Source number 13 The term statutes refers to the decrees of the divine king which have no rationale. Statutes are decrees of a king who imprints it with his authority without revealing their purpose to the people. But all of his laws have a correct reason and a perfect purpose. Not to say there is no rationale. God has his reasons, but he doesn't tell us them. Some mitzvahs, he tells us a little bit about them, why they're beneficial, the benefits and the reasons, the logic behind it, at least somewhat of it. But then there are the statutes, the chukim, what's called a choik. This is the divine will. And the reasons are not really told to us. In this category is kosher as well as shatnez. The forbidden mixture of wool and linen is a choik. It's a statute. Not because it's going to irritate your skin and not because 
something's going to happen just because God said. That is God's will. And we submit ourselves to Hashem's will. It's right there in the Torah. Three, four, two verses. One in Leviticus, one there in Deuteronomy. Make sure your clothes are kosher. Make sure there's no mixture of wool and linen. Why? It's a choik. That being said, there are commentaries which, which do bring up a midrash which gives us somewhat of an insight into this mitzvah, although it is still in the category of not being rational, but we see some idea of wool and linen. And that is the story of Cain and Abel. Just concluded analyzing the story of the offerings of Cain and Abel. What did Abel bring up? Abel brought up a sheep. The fattest, the choicest of his firstborn, but it was a sheep. Is wool. There was wool there. Wool comes from a sheep. What did Cain bring up? Although the Torah does not say it explicitly, the Midrash tells us, and Rashi brought it, we saw in Source 2, flax seed. Flax. Where does linen come from? Real linen, not uh, hemp or jute. Where does... Yes, we'll get to your comment in a second. We'll get to that. But before, let's talk about the source for this mitzvah. Where does linen come from? From flax. So Cain's offering was flax. And Abel's offering was wool. Linen. So Cain's was linen and Abel's was wool. What does the Midrash tell us? Source 14, God said, Heaven forbid, never let the offerings of Cain and Abel be mixed up with one another, even in the weaving of a garment. Hi, Oded. We're learning about Shatnez. So God said, It is not fitting that a sinner's offering and the sacrifice of a virtuous man should be coupled. Hence, it is forbidden to combine them in a garment. Cain's offering was Pishtan, was flax, which linen is made from. And Abel's offering was tzon, which, which wool comes from. So what does God say? Abel's, who is a virtuous man, and he recognized and acknowledged as the best of the, the, the superior, the best of the species that he's choosing, should be a sacrifice. He brought from the fattest ones and the firstborn. His offering should not be coupled, should not be mixed with Cain, who chose flaxy, but he chose the inferior, minagarua. He chose not the best quality flax. He brought up linen, which is made from flax, flax which, which makes linen, from something not good. He was the sinner. And not just he was a sinner, as we learned, he didn't learn to emulate his brother and learn from his mistakes and bring up a good offering. He went ahead and he was jealous. He was envious. And that translated and that came into action and he, and he actually went ahead and murdered Abel. What does God say? Let these offerings not mix. This whole story of this offering, that offering, keep them apart. Each for itself is fine. Flax is beautiful. You could have linen. You could have wool. Don't bring them together in a garment. Source 15. Rabbeinu Bachia elaborates on this idea. A little bit mystical. I can't say I understand everything. But just to give us a little insight into this idea of the mixture of wool and linen known as Shatnez. Source 15. The two firstborn of the world, Cain and Abel, were such a mixture. One good and one bad. We are enjoined to follow only the spirit of holiness and to distance ourselves from that which is evil and impure. That is why such forbidden mixtures are forbidden, for they fuse the two opposite extremes 
and their combinations do not work well. So spirit, spiritually speaking, having these two extremes, Abel's offering sort of, which this is not just a regular, this is the first story, the first offering sort of that the Torah talks about. They, they obviously represent something very deep and lofty. So taking wool and taking linen, which represent purity and impurity, well, you could have linen for itself, but somehow this mixture fusing together does not, uh, this combination does not make the best the best results. So the Torah says, although this is a choik, this is a statue without giving us reason, but some idea here is traced back to Cain and Abel. And really, before we go into the details of Shatnez and how we can apply this to ourselves, really, um, it's not just a mixture of wool and linen, which is forbidden. In general, Torah says uh, a list of few other things, which is, you know, crossbreeding, different animals, species together, that is forbidden from the Torah. Planting certain things together, you know, a vineyard should be separate from from uh, from uh, wheat and other things. We don't mix things because, in general, here it's explained in Source 16. The world is defined by distinct distinct categories. Everything has its own spiritual force. By mixing certain items together, these forces are compromised and cannot perform their assigned task. The underlying difference between the two kinds, how each is meant to serve its greater, has been violated. So although you are allowed to have a mixture of polyester and wool and different wool blends and, and other kinds of things, but this is some idea that obviously wool and linen are supposed to be separate. They're not supposed to be mixed together. That is the way God wants it. And some of the commentaries based on a Midrash trace it back to this story that we just discussed, the story of Cain and Abel, Abel's offering being um, sheep, which is the provider of wool, and Cain's offering being uh, flax, which is the provider of linen. These mixtures should not be mixed together. Okay, let's move on to the most fascinating part, the final section of our lesson, how this comes down into practical and practice, how we go about making sure that our clothing does not contain a mixture of linen and wool. Here we go, source number 17. These laws are discussed at length. You think that we only discuss kosher, or only discuss marriage, or only this. So many things are discussed in Torah and Talmud, and it's fascinating how knowledgeable and, and, and the insight that the, the, the rabbis um, you know, discuss in the Talmud, of course, there are debates as well, nothing's clear cut. But here is just a, a taste of what this halacha and mitzvah entails. The first thing is that when it comes to, let's say, mixtures of kosher, we have a general rule of things being uh, annulled, things being, uh, you know, bottle. If, if, if a drop of milk falls into a big pot of, of meat, then we say, okay, the milk, it does not, you can't taste the milk when you're eating it. It's all mixed in. There's 60 times more meat than milk, then it's okay. That's the general rule. Sometimes you have to take out a piece of meat that the milk fell on. There's lots of details, but generally we say it's called, it's called bitl. Something gets nullified. You have a lot more of it, so it's, it's, it's worthless. It doesn't contribute any taste. But that's not so when it comes to the laws of... It's not always a law in kosher. That's milk and meat. Sometimes you'll have a non-kosher... It's not always like that. It depends if it's 
uh, let's say uh, what falls in. There's milk and meat. Sometimes it's a uh, it's meat and meat. You have a non-kosher piece of meat that falls into kosher meat. So there's different rules and different numbers. But there is such a concept of something being nullified. However, when it comes to the mixture of wool and linen, this does not apply. Source 17. There is no minimum measure for shatnes. Even the smallest thread of wool in a large linen garment or a thread of linen in a woolen garment is forbidden. Now this is very important because it's you would think, well, I'll just look at the label. If the label says woolen linen, then I know it's a problem. If it doesn't say woolen linen, it's not a problem. But that's not the case. Because even one thread of linen in a wool garment or one thread of wool in a linen garment is problematic from a halachic point. But that won't end up on the label necessarily. A label that states that a garment of is 100% wool may contain as much as 5% of other materials and does not have to be mentioned on the label. In addition, the label describes only the shell of the garment and not the padding and the ornamental threads. So, I'm not in the textile business, but, excuse me, there was a man about... Um, Oh, getting back to what we said before, how there was one individual who bought a suit. He was a you know a teenager. He bought a suit, and uh, it was a wool suit. And then I don't remember all the details, but he, it ended up that he got, he got his he decided to check his suit anyways, even though it said one hundred percent wool and linen was found in the suit. And he said, "Hey, if I'm wear if I was just trying, it was on Rosh Hashanah actually. He was wearing the suit on Rosh Hashanah. You imagine the first holiday. He didn't want to be." transgressing this law of shatnes on such a holy day, but it said 100% wool on the, lin- on the label and he was not aware that it needs to be checked. And he decided to make awareness and he goes around teaching. And there was another such individual. His name was Mr. Rosenberger, Joseph Rosenberger. He lived in Williamsburg. He was a survivor of the, of the Holocaust. He spent uh, about six months in Dachau. And his father before the war was, uh, was in the textile business and was helped a lot of people. You know, in, in those days, people didn't, people um, didn't often, I guess, buy a suit from, um, from just uh, any company that was, you know, overseas or far away. They, they bought local and they, they went themselves, they bought material, they went to the tailor or the seamstress and they knew what was going into their suit or into their jacket, into their clothing and they were careful and it, and or to make sure it was it was uh, no mixtures of wool and linen. But nowadays things are manufactured all over the world, and there's so many laws, so many rules. The you know the the Federal Trade Commission has all these laws about labels, and and the law is that if something is less a certain percentage, then if it's less than five percent or whatever it is, or a certain percentage does not have to be listed on the label. So just because the label says. Uh, 100% wool or whatever materials that there is, it's still, we have to make sure there's no small percentage of linen threads in there. Now, what do I do? Do, do I have to check any, any clothing? So there are, there, this Mr. Rosenberger, who, who, uh, he, his father was before the war, helped a lot of people with, with, uh, checking their garments. His son, Mr. Joseph, came here to America and he threw himself into this um, field. He went, he, you know, he went to, to, he signed up to different courses uh, to, to study different materials, how to identify 
uh, the fibers, whether what what they're made out of, and really learned about them, and brought this awareness to the Jewish community here in America of making sure our clothing today are free of a mixture. So what what should one do? <clears throat> Let's. Let's just learn a little bit more and we'll talk a little more practical. Source 18, shatnes is forbidden whether the mixture of wool linen occurred at the stage of combing, spinning, or weaving. Even if linen threads were used to sew buttons onto a wool suit or to reinforce shoulder pads, this is forbidden as shatnes. So whatever stage, whether in the combing, while there's still you know raw raw uh, linen, uh, flax, whatever, whatever it's called, linen, and and, and wool and how they comb it, either it's combed together and the threads, uh, whatever stage of, of the process, spinning them together, at the weaving together, or what's called plying. At any point, any mixture in the same garment of wool and linen is problematic. Source 19, one may wear a woolen jacket over a linen shirt. If they're not connected, if they're not sewn together, not one garment, that's permitted, or vice versa as long as it is possible to take off one without taking off the other. So if you're wearing a shirt over, a sweater over a shirt, that might be hard. But, you know, pants and a shirt, that is definitely okay. It is permitted to try on a garment in a clothing store without knowing whether it has shatnes or nuts. If you know for sure that, you know, look at the label, it says there's wool and linen in there, then you, then you have your answer. Obviously, you shouldn't put it on even to try it on. But if you're not sure, you can try it on. Another point, source 20, it is permitted to make mixed fabrics and sell them. It is forbidden only to wear them or cover oneself with them. However, to sit under it like in a tent is permitted. So you're allowed to, to, to uh, sell suits that are a mixture of wool and linen. Oh, just hope, make sure you're telling them not, not to Jewish people. Uh, they are, they're not under this, uh, restricted by this mitzvah, by this law. Or you can use them in other ways. But like a tent, but to wear them or to cover yourself with them, a blanket, something like that, that would be a problem. So what do we do? Source 21. If purchasing a suit that contains either wool or linen, you should have the garment inspected by a shotness expert to establish that it does not contain shotness. These experts take appropriate samples from the garment without ruining the garment and send the samples to a shotness laboratory. At the laboratory, the sample is examined under a low-powered microscope and the materials are identified. If you'll notice, today's lesson was called the man, of a, the man of the Cloth. Man of the Cloth, I'm referring here to certain individuals who dedicate their lives their profession is to cloth, to identifying, learning fabrics, learning text, the textile business, learning how companies make clothing, why and where they might put linen, they might put wool, where to search, how to identify under a microscope what these fibers are. And, that, and, and they have established across the world and the Jewish community a Shatnez laboratory. They trained um, using the knowledge that they, 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 they studied, um, training sh- uh, sample takers and Shatnez uh, labs, setting up labs 
to identify in clothing if there is a mixture of wool and linen. So if you buy clothing, you're buying a suit, you're buying a jacket, buying a sweater, scarf, maybe even a tie, the first thing you want to do is look at the label. Check the label. If the label has no wool or no linen, then it's very far-fetched that there would be a mixture in there. But if there does say wool or linen, even if it says 100% wool or 100% linen, or it says for a certain amount of wool, a certain amount of polyester, but if there's wool in there on the label or linen in there, it should be examined by an expert. What will they do? Because, why, why does it need to be examined? Because when I understand, let's say you have a 100% wool suit. Many times in certain areas, certain parts of the suit, they will insert linen and it won't be 5% and they won't be mentioned on the label. For example, the collar. The back of the collar has like this felt over there and linen is many times used because linen is stiff and it keeps the shape. The shoulder pads many times have linen or the stitchings of buttons of the, of the shoulder uh, can, can have linen. Many times the embroidery or the trimmings are linen. The design on, on the sweater, the picture, the whatever it is can be of linen. And same thing the other way. If it's linen, I'll get the question in a moment. If it's linen, it can have wool in there. Now, here in America, if it's made in the USA, if it's really made in the USA, sometimes it says made in the USA and it's really made somewhere else, a lot of synthetic uh, materials are used. It used to be more, uh, you know, European-made clothing are used more, kind of, is more of a suspicion that there is a mixture of wool and linen. Like from Russia, uh, many clothing have a mixture of wool and linen. Um, there are certain companies that are known that their clothing has a mixture of wool and linen, even though it's not on the label. Like Hugo Boss, if I'm pronouncing correctly, uh, is is known to 95% of their, their clothing has has uh, uh, has linen inside the wool wool stuff. So it's a problem. Now, what what is so? What should we do? So if somebody sees on the label wool, or if it says wool and linen on the label, you know you sure have a problem. If even if it doesn't say wool and linen, just says wool or linen, we can take it to a to a um, place where they'll take a sample, and maybe in the same place, it's the lab, they'll take the, they'll do the job for you, okay? It costs a couple of dollars, five dollars, six, seven dollars per garment, and they know where to look. There's certain pressure points, let's say even in pants, or, you know, where you want to hang up a sweater, or over there they'll put a piece of linen to make it stronger, or certain parts of the seams of the pants, or other articles of clothing, and that's where they'll look, and pull out a, they'll make a small incision somewhere at the bottom of the, of the, you know, the, what's called the uh, lining, and they'll pull out one small thread of where they think there might be a problem, and either they'll identify by themselves, they already have the eye for it, and know what the different uh, threads look like, some of them are, whether it's from color, Sometimes just by looking at a garment, they can tell. They can see, you know, linen has like white. It's whitish. So the, the the thread is like th- it's not so it's not so even. It's like thick and thin at different parts of it. Um, if it wasn't dyed, it, it has a beige kind of look to it. There are different ways of of, of, of just uh, feeling it. 
but also even if it's very small pieces under a microscope they can identify it and uh you know wool looks more jagged and and linen and they know also to the differentiate between linen and jute and jute and hemp and cashmere and other things that can look very similar to wool to see if it is a problem it's not a problem if it's a very small amount they can give it to the tailor and they can fix it up themselves just change the shoulder paddings or put something else there other times it's not it's not worth it to to fix and we just have to sell it give it back to the store or sell it to somebody uh who doesn't have this restriction what else um and it's not just suits so if it says clearly other times you can say on the label of which stands for other fibers or another word maybe uh um mixture of mf maybe a mixture of fibers and that is i, I believe that they they take all the leftovers that's on the floor in the, in the in the you know in these factories and they just press it together without weaving, without spinning it, and it's like this felt. Sometimes you'll see in a, in a pillow all this like colorful kind of stuff coming out. It's a mixture of all kinds of thread, all, uh, threads, all kinds of fibers, and many times in that there can be a mixture of wool and linen, and uh, they should be, they should be uh, checked and identified and make sure there is no mixture of wool and linen there. There are many, many stories. Sometimes you go to many uh, Jewish stores, you know, here in, in Brooklyn or New York, they'll offer the service. And sometimes, many times, they, they say, oh, it's made, we know what it's made from, and there's no, there's no mixture. But it's always good to be extra careful because there's so many cases that they thought it was good, and then they check it, and they find here, they find there a mixture of wool and linen. So um, that is a little bit about about shatnes. You know, it's a we don't want to have that impure kind of hadayana. We don't have that impure kind of spirit while while we're praying, while we're davening. Sometimes they find even on, on a talis, somebody gives in their talis, their prayer shawl to be fixed by the tailor, and what does he put? He puts a patch of linen because it's because it's durable, you know. And while they're davening, it's a wool talis, and there's linen. It's a wool and linen in there. It's terrible. So we have to be very aware, very um, vigilant of, of this of this mitzvah. And sometimes you buy clothing and it gets maybe we even check it, and then we give it to the tailor. But the tailor doesn't know and adds a little piece here, a piece over there, and there can be a mixture of of uh, wool and linen. Many labels are even mislabeled. They're mislabeled. They they they, they write uh, cashmere. It's really wool, or they write wool and it's really cashmere. So it's not a problem if it has linen in there. So it's always best if we buy something which says wool or says linen, or any really any suit. Sometimes there's even if it's a linen suit, or even if it's not wool or linen. Many times the reinforcements there's linen in there. There might be wool in there. It should be checked. I can uh, there's many many what's called shotness labs. Many cleaners will do this service, taking your clothes, takes a day or two, or maybe a week. To, there's usually one or two days a week that the man comes in, that is trained to identify either with his eyes already or under a microscope. And it's just a couple of dollars. Usually they'll put a little tag in the, in the suit on the inside saying, you know, this was checked, no shotness, and you're good to wear it. But it's definitely something which... Um, <clears throat> which should be taken into account. Okay, now we have time for questions. 
uh, Maureen, when you, if you're hearing or when you hear this later, I hope that answers your question. So let me answer your question, Jody. If you buy a wool suit, then you can't wear a cotton shirt. I don't know. Cotton, what does cotton come from? Cotton um, does, no, I don't, cotton is not a problem. It's specifically linen, which is made from the flax. Cotton is not a problem. Uh, specifically linen material, which comes from the stem, the stalk of the flax seed, and that is a problem. Um, I do all the time. I wear cotton shirts and a wool jacket, and that's not a problem. And if there's a way of taking a shirt off without the jacket getting off, so that, that, that would either be a problem. But linen, there are many jackets that are linen. So if you're wearing a wool sweater, I don't know why if you would wear if a wool sweater, but if you have a wool sweater and then you're putting a linen jacket on, that can be a problem. But that's, that's, that's a, that we're talking more here, that goes to be a problem, but mainly the actual garments, garment. And um, they even have a, a service that they do house calls. They'll come to your house for minimal charge and go through all your wool or linen clothing and sometimes they, you know, they recommend even regular jackets that are not wool or not linen. That can they, they should all be checked for the shoulder pads. They, they know already where to where to check, and um, they help us stay clear of this problem of wearing shanas. Unfortunately, uh, in the early years, you know, six seventy years ago, it was they were not they, people were not so aware of, of, of this problem. You know, the, it's like kosher. Oh, look at, just look at the label. If the, look at the ingredients. If there's no milk, there's no meat, it's not a problem. It's, it's not exactly that way because there are so many things in there, whatever they're called, the preservatives or, or all kinds of, I forgot what they're called, different things that are put into ingredients, put into um, foods and that uh, don't have to be listed on the, exact, they don't have to be listed explicitly on, on the label. But when it comes to kosher, they have different laws than the government laws. And the same thing when it comes to clothing, the textile business. Um, you know, uniforms is a problem, can be a problem. Things need to be cha- checked. And most times, the, the things are okay. But many times, um, it can be problematic. So we should be vigilant when we buy clothing. And even our own clothes that are at home, if you need help, um, I'll be happy to have someone, we can arrange someone to come to your house or next time you buy a suit or jacket, suits and jackets should always be checked. But other clothing, if you see wool on the label, if you see linen, there's a high chance that somewhere in there, there is a thread of wool, a thread of linen in the buttons and the embroidery and the trimmings, somewhere in there. Um, and it should be examined and you know, it takes a couple of days and you have it and you know that your clothes are kosher. And the this man, the man of the cloth, the man who did it, many people already by now trained by him. He has since passed on, I believe. But many of his students are trained and they, you know, learned the science. They learned the, to, to recognize the, the fibers. And, you know, it's not easy. I think hemp and Hemp and linen look, look very similar, but the only problem is real linen and real wool from a sheep. That's the problem of this mixture. Okay.
Any other questions before we sign off today's uh, lunch and learn? So you went a little over time. Um, yeah, so Maureen brought up this question, I guess, uh, about, about Shatnez. We finally got to it uh, to discuss this mitzvah. This little bit mysterious mitzvah associated with, you know, traced back to Cain and Abel, the different offerings, but it's a mixture. Let me read, uh, Maureen, please, you are covering this issue. Next question, why can't clothing manufacturers make suits for from to avoid pulling out inappropriate stuff, right? So the problem is that even the kosher manufacturer, even the, you know, the religious manufacturers that are aware of this, sometimes they send it off somewhere and and uh, things get mixed in, whether it's, um, they're, they're not aware, they think it's just the, you know, the stitching is not a problem or the, the, the um, whatever they're called, the, the um, paddings are not a problem. So unfortunately, many of these Jewish companies tell their clients, yeah, it's okay, we know when in, but really they should be checked anyways to be on the safe side. And and uh, if we have, they have to pull out the inappropriate stuff, it happened to me, you bought a suit and they just, they replace it. You know, they're either they do it themselves, they have a tailor uh, trained and can replace it with something else durable. Now they have so many synthetic materials and linen. Look, linen, there's there's hemp, which is so similar to it. And wool, if it's wool, it can be, they can put something ca- of cashmere or something very similar looking. It can be avoided at a very low cost many times. Sometimes you have to buy a different suit. But why should we, why shouldn't we have kosher clothes if we can? We just need to get them checked. So you have a mashkiach, you have what's called a mashkiach who's in the kosher food industry, making sure that, that there's no bugs in the in the food and making sure there's no traces of chazer, of pig and, and gelatin or whatever, other products. And we have what's called sample takers or lab, people that work in a shotness laboratory. Well, they'll make sure that our clothing are free of shotness. And that wraps up our lesson for today. Going to the story of Cain and Abel who brought up offerings Abel's offering was accepted and we learned from there to give the choicest, to give the best of ourselves for, for Hashem, whatever it is. And we learned from Cain's mistake not to be envious of Abel, but to try to emulate, be, to learn from him and try to learn from our errors and transform that. Like this man who realized that on Rosh Hashanah, he was wearing a suit which contained wool and linen and he resolved to bring awareness to others and he goes around giving lectures, giving workshops and giving showing samples of suits, of clothing. And it's not just suits, it could be sweaters, it could be scarves, it could be even even certain kinds of pillows, it can be mittens for for kitchen, it can be uh, you know draperies that that, that person or, or, or you know uses to cover themselves that these things can be a problem. And there is a way to avoid it. So thank you for joining us for Lunch and Learn number 111. And um, hope this was informative and inspirational. Join us back next week, Tuesday at 12.15 for another Lunch and Learn 112. Thank you, Maureen, for bringing up this topic. If anybody has a specific topic they would like us to cover, feel free to message me. And join us again on Thursday for episode 22 at 7 30 what will we talk about this time who knows have a wonderful rest of your day and great studying torah together